Carnival personnel was recorded in the dank, moldy basement. Joe and Jacques, it's Carnival personnel. Joe and Jacques, to their wives this show is their personal hell. Well, the show sounds the same every single week. Pats are great, Trump is lame, and Joe barely speaks. Who you think still listening? Who you think still listening? Besides Jim and Biff, yeah. And don't forget Richard. Here's a random review. No one cares about you two, Joe and Jacques. Joe and Jacques, Joe and Jacques, Joe and Jacques. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. A family threatened by war. We have to do something. I forbid you to go. My child! You're my child! A son fighting for his beliefs. Father, I thought you were a man of principle. When you have a family of your own, perhaps you'll understand. When I have a family of my own, I won't hide behind them. I thought, wait a second, could it be? And now I know for sure, I just added two more guys to my wolf pack. All right. All right. Four of us wolves running around the desert together in Las Vegas, looking for strippers and cocaine. Yum, yum. It's time for a tasty and refreshing snack. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night, we will not vanish without a fight, we're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Madman. For a madman. Earth and water. But you'll find plenty of both down there. No man. Persian or Greek, no man threatens a messenger. You bring the crowns and heads of conquered kings to my city steps. You insult my queen. You threaten my people with slavery and death. Oh, I've chosen my words carefully, Persian. Perhaps you should have done the same. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is Sparta! And now, our feature presentation. Hello, and welcome to Carnival Personnel Sideshow. I'm Jacques. Uh, this is Biff. Joe here. Guys, we've had some amazing guests over the years. This year, we've had so many incredible guests. I could not be more elated and excited to have our guest today. A little shocked, not that this guest is coming on our little podcast, but that he has ever taken a phone call from me. And that we have a friendship 
that is about 20 years old at this point. Um, I met this gentleman, and we'll get into it in a couple minutes, but it's one of those things where I sometimes have found myself in, in, in the Talking Head song where it's like, well, how did I get here? Like, how do I know certain people? Why have certain people and I become friends? And I have not um, met a guy more accomplished and who's been an amazing mentor to me. I, you know, I'm very – I have the mentor of John, Biff, you know – you know, John is my brother, and I can never thank him for the mentorship over the 25 years I've known him. But Bill and I have been friends for a while, and in the most one-sided relationship <laughs> and friendship <laughs> history, uh, this guy has been nothing but but like a prince amongst men and just the nicest Swedish person you will ever want to meet who has no right being this nice with what he's accomplished in his life. And so today's guest is Bill Fay. Bill was a, a film producer. He, he did a couple little tiny movies such as like Independence Day and The Patriot, which led to him being able to, with one partner, put together Legendary Pictures, arguably the most successful, at least one of the most successful production companies in the last like 30, 40 years in movies. So with, without that, Bill, welcome to our little podcast. Great to be here, Jacques. And, you know, I'm hoping that my friendship with you at some time will pay off with something. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I'm going to jump in. Here. Bill, do you remember how we met? Uh, we met because you were uh, one of the companies I was putting together. You helped me um, put together the promo if I remember for the company. Well, I'm quite sure the day was as meaningful for you as it was for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was working at a place, I was I was running two departments at this post house called Point 360. Um, it had five facilities around Los Angeles. And we were in the starting uh, about a 10 year process of taking every piece of tape that Universal Music had on video and putting it out as DVDs. Uh, this is even pre-Blu-ray. Pre and I got a call from the front office saying, somebody needs to use the audio booth. Is it booked? And it was. I asked who's coming in. They said, no, this guy, Bill Fay. I don't think IMDb was a thing yet. And I like, oh, well, let me look this guy up. And I'm like, yes, the audio bay is empty. And I called my client, who's a, a hockey buddy. I said, look, I got to bump you today. I probably gave him my king tickets. And Biff, when I say my king tickets, you yeah, know. Yeah, not, yeah, John's thing, king's tickets, but sure. <laughs> I held on to my friend John's king tickets for like 20 years. And it, so I said, GF, I'm just going to give you these. Bill comes in. And yes, this is pre-smartphone. Basically, it, you were developing a website or, or your wife was developing up a website to if you have a couple kids in sports and like schools it was a calendar event basically it was i calendar is what she was trying to put together and you came in to do a voiceover for that and i remember after the voiceover session you're like okay what do we owe you i'm like uh you owe me lunch you're like great we went to lunch a few days later i don't know if my wife had moved out yet or if she was in the process of moving out from boston going back and forth and when we sat down and i wanted to talk about movies <laughs> and you're mentioning oh my wife is doing xyc i'm not really sure what we're going to do with this once it launches and that's when you know ellen's like oh well, the guy just raised his kids for the last eight years, created this company called SolidWorks. He's a tech guy. 
And you and I, about a week later, went to talk to John. You came back here to Boston to figure out, hey, what do I do with this? And I don't think Legendary Picture had started yet. So this would have been 20, uh, 2003. Sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, it was just we were Thomas Tull, who was the the the, the principal in Legendary um, uh, the, and put the, all the financing together. He and I were working on a couple other projects then, and we were just starting to formulate the idea for, for Legendary. Actually, I think we might have been um, uh, talking with MGM at the time. We were negotiating to buy the whole Orion Film Library right about that time, I think. And then we ended up moving on and making the deal with Warner Brothers, and that's, that's another story. But it was just you two at the start. Yeah. And Thomas does not come from the film world. Right. We actually, I met Thomas Tull through his cousin who worked um, for me at Centropolis Effects when I was working with Roland Emmerich. And uh, we, that's when we were doing Independence Day and Godzilla and the Patriot. And um, so he came out and he was, I don't know, like 26 or 27 years old. And we met and he, you know, he was fascinated by the movie business. And I could kind of tell right away that he was quite um quite a singular person, even at that age. So we stayed in touch and we both played guitar. So we'd get together and jam and I'd fly out to Atlanta and hang out with him. And eventually we moved into a couple other businesses and then, uh, and then it was legendary. And, and when you went to legendary for what, and you might know a little bit more about the details than I do. Essentially you put together a proposal with the idea that, Hey, these type of movies aren't getting this level funding and there's definitely an appetite for it. And here's the first 10 movies we would like to do. And we don't want to piecemeal raise the money, do this movie, raise the money, do this movie. You wanted to get a pot of money and just go and do your first 10 movies and see how it goes. How, how off am I? No, that's pretty close. And uh, more than 10, more like 25. I mean, we, the, the goal right off the bat was to put together a big deal. And the idea is the movie business, I've always described it. It's like the oil business, right? You're digging wells, seven, you know, you dig 10 wells, seven of them are busts. Two of them, two or three of them do okay. And then there's one that pays for everything else and more. So you have to have, you know, if you want to get that home run, you got to get enough swings at the plate. So the idea right off the bat was to put together this, you know, 25 film slate. And we did probably more actual quant um, data research than any other private production company that had ever been formed. We worked with a, a company here in Los Angeles called the Salter Group that has all the data on from all the studios and how they put their deals together. Now, obviously, you know, they can't tell us like which film was which or anything else, but we could take all that data and see how these movies made money over that particular lifestyle based uh, that the lifespan of the movie based on genre. And by looking at that, we sort of said, here are the movies at this point in history that are doing well. They tend to be director driven. They tend to be genre pictures which was great for me because that's what I come from is genre movies. Um, and they tend to not be star driven. They're not dramas. They're not, you know, um, any, any of those kind of movies. So we focus the company right off the bat and we were able to show like all these big private equity companies. We're the first, as far as I know, the first big production company that was private equity funded. And we were able to show all these big companies that, Hey, if we, if we do this over 20, 25 movies 
and hit to this batting average, we can make money because we're avoiding all these types of movies that don't tend to do well. You know, the studios have a lot of reasons for making movies and making as much money as possible is one of those reasons. Only one, believe it or not. They also are trying to establish relationships with movie stars. They're trying to win Academy Awards. They're trying to satisfy, you know, certain segments of the population. With Legendary, we weren't focused on any of that. We were really focused on, we're going to make genre movies and we want to make stuff that people come to see, hence movies that make money. So did you have a better batting average? with? The, like, it sounds like you probably established a better batting average, if you will, rather than what you talked about initially of, you know, the one movie that pays for everything because you did so much background uh, research. Yeah, we ended up and, you know, it's always going to be a call whether, you know, our choices were genius or we got <laughs> lucky or both. It's probably a little of both. Um, wow. But that focus really paid off. And um, yeah, Legendary ended up doing right. far beyond yeah. any of our any of the models, even the, the best model that we modeled out for our investors. Wow. We ended up doing way better than that. We just, you know, we had a, some really early success. Um, Batman Begins and 300 were the first two biggies that really mm. got us off to an amazing start. And the key with these kind of deals is if you have a winner early, that changes the whole game, right? Because now you've got money to spend on making more movies right off the bat. Wow. Um, and I think, did you did you get a pool of like $1.5 billion to start the whole thing? You raised all the money, and then you said, we're going to raise some money, then we're going to go make movies. Is that kind of how it happened? Was all the money secured before you started so that you could just focus? These movies take two, three, four years after all the contracts are signed. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I mean, it was getting the movie the deal together was really a dance between warner brothers and all our investors right you kind of drag somebody a half a step forward and then the other party half a step forward because to them nothing none of this happens unless all the deal comes together but we um we ended up raising i think it was about 300 million in in equity and then we borrowed another 500 million on top of that but Part of the deal with Warner Brothers is that it allowed us to come into movies that they already had in progress, right? right? So we could hit the ground right away. And luckily enough, the first picture was Batman Begins. And everybody always goes, well, why the heck would they let you into Batman Begins? I mean, well, Batman Begins was a much bigger gamble before it came out than it seems like now. It was Christopher Nolan who hadn't done any big movies, really. It was a dark, it was a darker take on the whole thing. It was, you know, um, reviving the Batman thing, which nobody was sure whether there was anywhere to go with it after the Batman nipple episode with George Clooney <laughs> and all that stuff. So it wasn't, a, it was not a sure bet. Well, Clo and, Clo Clooney famously said he killed the Batman yeah. franchise. Yeah, for but about you had, 10 or 15 but, years. <laughs> but you had your research on that movie, or did you have your like your unique research on that movie, or uh, was no? That, but it, no, that it, was separate. We, yeah, we had a, a green light committee, which was Thomas, me, and and one other partner, and we were, um, you know, we would all do particular analysis on every singular movie. But Batman Begins obviously fit what right. we were talking about. Director driven. We already knew mm -hmm. Nolan was an amazing director. Memento is like one of my all-time favorite yeah. movies. Um, and it was absolutely genre. Mm. So it really fit what we were looking for. And so it was it yeah. was kind of an easy call. And and you know, we we ended up, you know, 
because it took a while for us to get all our money together. I think we ended up we we had the we had the ability to put the money in there, but we didn't actually get the money to them. I think until like a couple of weeks before the movie opened. Mm. <laughs> the um, I, I remember. So I would make up excuses to come like you know i my, my office my company at this point is in santa monica you know i'm living in venice and i just loved being on the lot and maybe once every other month i would have an excuse to come by and bill and i would go to lunch and i remember one of bill's i don't i don't know if frustration is the right word and and again fill in the blanks or fill in fill in where i'm messing this story up essentially batman begins and superman returns come out at the same time and i think superman returns with ben, brendan roth which you know takes place if you haven't seen it joe uh it takes place right after superman 2 like with christopher reeves it, it like he flies off to find krypton and and in this timeline it's, it's a direct sequel to superman 2 right it's five years after this yep. and that movie cost 200 million to make and the powers to be in the Hollywood in a secret back room filled with cigar smoke. Somebody said this movie should make $400 million. Batman begins cost 150 and somebody said this should make 300 and, or, or like Superman should make, you know, whatever. Uh, Superman did great. It made money, but it didn't hit the projection. It didn't, what, what the arbitrary, this is what it should make. It didn't hit that number. It missed it by like 50 million. It still made money. And Batman Begin exceeded it by 50 million. And right away, they're like, great, let's start the Dark Knight tomorrow. And it wasn't seven years. It was seven years later before you saw Superman, which is Warner Brothers' second biggest property next to Bugs Bunny worldwide. Bugs Bunny's number one, Superman's number two worldwide. But you didn't see live-action Superman on the screen for, I think, like seven or eight more years. All because somebody decided, oh, this movie wasn't successful enough. And that was I, – I, I think that was a frustration because that's what you – deal with when you make these crazy big movies and this is before marvel set the bar where now if a superhero movie doesn't make a billion dollars you failed miserably yeah it's uh and by the way just uh for the audience out there jacques numbers that he's quoting on the budgets are numbers that he looks up because i'm not allowed to talk about that he's gonna make sure that's clear okay uh, <laughs> but uh not far off um yeah. and and you're right it's so much of it is about expectation the fact was there wasn't nearly the expectation built around Batman Begins that there was around Superman for the studio, for the audience, for everybody. So the fact that Superman uh, Returns wasn't a mega hit was made it feel like a, a little bit of a disappointment, which is too bad. We we did really well on the movie. It was definitely a hit. It just wasn't at the level that everybody was building it up to be where Batman it's why studios are always try, almost always trying to lower expectations when they release a movie, because it's much easier to talk about, hey, the movie made 40 million opening weekend and everybody thought it was going to do 20, then the movie made 40 million opening weekend and everybody thought it was going to do 60. Those are two totally different stories. Well, I, the, one of the conversations that I always remember, we are having lunch on the lot the day before The Hangover comes out. I'll just make up some numbers. It costs 
35 to make it. And the whole idea is we've done so well staying in our lane. It's time for us to branch out a little bit. So we kind of want to dip our toe in this just to kind of diversify our portfolio. You know, everybody thinks, oh, you know, this is going to be a fun movie. We'll break even on it. And I remember you saying, we're going to do a little better than that. I think we're going to make 50. Like it costs 35. And again, I'm just making up numbers. We didn't have this conversation, but you're like, it costs 35. I think it's going to make 50. Even you did not think that at the time and for a long time, the highest grossing rated R movie ever. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah, that must not have been the week before it opened shock because by then I knew it you was knew. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, we, we got into The Hangover just because it was an amazing concept, right? And in a way, it was a genre picture. We hadn't really been in the comedy area, but this was just not something we could pass up. And um, we, uh, I remember having a conversation with, with Todd Phillips, like at the premiere party. This is a week before it opens. And he's going, are we going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? And I was like, oh, we're going to be way better than okay. We're going to... This movie's going to be huge. But I said, I don't know if it's going to be as huge as The Wedding Crashers. You know, because The Wedding Crashers had female actors, you know, big female roles in it. And it has, you know, it's got the wedding thing. And, you know, the Vegas thing, it feels like, you know, we're going to get the guys and they're going to bring their girlfriends along. But, you know, and it's tracking well with guys and girls. So we're going to be big. It's going to do great. But... I don't know if we can ever hit that ceiling because and and of course we blew right right past it. So, but and, and it yeah. was it was a perfect timing because Ed Helms is fourth banana on the office and Bradley Cooper's not Bradley Cooper. I mean, I think he's still coming off he might still be on alias or he's just coming off of alias, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and Gaffinak is, is who uh, is one of my favorite I don't I don't really consider him a comic as much as a performance artist, like a comedic like performance art, but none of them were, were stars. Um, yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that the, the, you know, the studio, uh, there were people at the studio and I have to say they're incredible, incredible partners for us during the whole run of legendary Warner brothers, Alan Horn, the whole team, they were amazing partners, but there were people within there who were like, geez, another Vegas comedy. There's been, I mean, you can name a bunch of them before that, I, I can't even remember what they were now, but it was like, that's kind of tired. Um, and there were people at the studio going, you know, we got this really good script. Let's bring what we need in this movie is Will Ferrell and Adam Sandler. Right. Play the roles. And Todd was like, no, you know, no, this is the way to go is to make this fresh. And I think it really, really paid off. Not that those guys wouldn't have done a great job. But the idea that you meet these guys, this is the wolf pack, you're discovering them. You don't, you're not like associating them with a hundred movies you've seen before this. Makes all the difference, I think. That's um, what made it part of so much of a kind of a fresh revelation for the audience. Did did you have did you have any movies like that you like Ninja Assassin? Did you think that that was going to be a? I when I saw that, I, I, that was one of the ones I got to go to the premiere, and it was such a Hollywood premiere because it was at Man's Chinese. You're welcome. You, you, thank you. You had this whole scaffolding thing. <laughs> they set up this whole scaffolding thing, like three stories of scaffolding, littered with ninjas. 
like like it was such an old kind of hollywood feel vibe that it was like this it was amazing i it was that something that you guys thought was a one-off or that you thought that was going to be franchised and how tough was that when you thought something should have gone two or three deep and it was a one-off well, it was, first of all, that's one of the other great things about Warner Brothers is almost all the premieres were at man's Chinese theaters. And you can't get at, at the Chinese theater, right, with the handprints and everything. And you can't get more historic than that. So it was just awesome. Every time we had a movie opening, yeah. it was just a big event. Um, Ninja Assassin, I think we just thought we were going to do better both domestically and internationally um, on the movie. And certainly we would have been looking for more and we had a you know we had a solid director and a great team and um you just you know you never really know about those things you kind of have a sense before something comes out like i can say with independence day there was six months of insanity before the movie opened like insanity and so we knew that was going to be big and most of the hits you know they're going to be big but if other than that it's just tough to it's tough to judge and you usually know what the real stinkers are too you know it's just there are problems all the way along you never feel like you quite nailed the script right you the thing about making a movie it's a it's a freight train and when it's going down the track you find as you're shooting stuff is coming up and you're trying to fix it but it's really hard to fix so we we could just do just we could just do a series of podcasts just on legendary. We could do an episode on the town, an episode on this. But so when you start legendary with Thomas, he's not from the film world. You started from the film world, uh, flying planes in Africa for low budget films. Like, so what was the timeline to finishing grad school, winding up learning to fly a plane so you could be at two different productions at the same time while you were, were you know put up footage for these films how did how did that all come about well um after i got out of school i worked for uh i went straight into work as an associate producer for a company um in hollywood that was making a movie with richard harris and uh, martin landau cool coolly enough i got to do that um and then they ended up going bankrupt. So I did a job. My first job out of school was working for a company for a year that went bankrupt. My second job was going to work for another producer who then went bankrupt. So I'm two and a half years into my career feeling like I have gotten absolutely nowhere. <laughs> so I managed to get a job as a production assistant, like the absolute lowly production assistant on a movie called Galaxy of Terror for Roger Corman. And wow. The great, the great Roger Corman. Wow. Thank you. The great Roger Corman, who as an aside was a Stanford grad. And the guys who hired me said, we, because Roger went to Stanford, we never hire people from Stanford, but we made an exception in your case. So <laughs> working as a PA, um, they, uh, they, the things are getting kind of messed up and they're getting behind on the schedule. And of course it's Roger Corman who literally would walk on the set and go, you guys are two days behind schedule, pick up the script, rip three pages out and go, now you're back on schedule. Um, so, you know, trying to hold this movie together and they set up a second unit and um, with the, uh, this is, this is a long segue. Sorry, Jock. Oh, good. No, I love this stuff. So, um, they set up a second unit with the production designer who is has done an amazing job. The sets all look amazing. 
and we start shooting. And so they go, we need an assistant cameraman for a second unit. And I go, well, I, you know, I've worked as an assistant cameraman. Total lie. I've been an assistant, you know, I, I went to UCLA film school. So I know how, I knew how to work with a camera and that was about it. But so they hire me as the assistant cameraman on second unit and we're shooting 20 hour days. The, the guy who was the production designer was named Jim Cameron. And he hey, ended like the up director. Shooting, what, whatever like, happened yeah. with him? <laughs> yeah, no, he, I don't know. I think he, he, I think he ended up doing okay. Um, but he ended up shooting about a third of the movie. So from that, I got a couple other odd jobs, and then I went to work for another, like a low budget Hollywood legend producer named Sandy Howard. Um, ended up like executive producing a couple things for him, and um, through, and then worked on a movie called Night of the Comet. Which is, by the way, if you want to see a great little genre movie from the 80s, Night of the Comet is awesome. So um, worked on that. Um, I met the guys who had done Valley Girl in that movie, uh, Wayne Crawford and Andy Lane. They were going and they we really got along great. And they said, we need a producer for this movie that we're going to shoot in Africa called Jake Speed, like a $4 million movie. We're going to shoot in Zimbabwe. Somehow they talked the studio into taking me at age 27 to go produce a movie you know on a continent i'd never been to for you know i don't know we had five or six million bucks um so i went there this is for new world pictures and somehow i managed to convince them that i could do this and so we went and did that and once i finished that then i became hollywood's sort of man in africa <laughs> so i was in zimbabwe for, for six months i literally <laughs> Flew home and they got, we got another movie for you. I fly back. I ended up um, making three or four movies and then working with Film Finances, which is a, a pretty well-known company that backs um, um, backs movies and kind of does the bo completion bonding on them. I ended up living in Africa for five years, working in 11 different countries, flying my plane around because uh, I got up, I needed to, it, that was the best way to get around there. And the great thing about flying in Africa is, you know, you don't have to worry about other planes for the most part. <laughs> you just get up there what? and go. So uh, cut that story short. So I did that and eventually realized I could be Hollywood's man in Africa for the rest of my life, or I could come back to Los Angeles and try and get a career going here as a producer. And luckily, one of the people that I'd worked with in Africa, um, an executive, um, became head of production at Universal, and she hired me to make my first um, studio movie, which was CB4, which I co-produced with Chris Rock. And uh, that ended up doing well. And so we went from, you know, I went from that to starting to make movies for Universal. And then I made a couple of movies. I did a movie for Fox. And um, then I met Roland Emmerich and his writing partner and producer, Dean Devlin, through a couple of other things. And we talked about working together and Eventually, they, they came to me um, when I'd finished a project and they said, we're about to start a new project and we need somebody. We want you to come in. We want you to run our company um, and uh, and produce this movie with us. And so we all go out to dinner and they basically pitch me. I'm going to just go into a little bit of Independence Day stuff here. So they they basically pitch me the idea for Independence Day at the dinner and they go, we're going to go off to Puerto Vallarta. We're going to write the script in about eight weeks. Um, then we're going to come back. It'll take a month or two to sell it. And then we'll get it set up and we'll do all this stuff. So I go, great. 
Um, and I'm, you know, I leave it. Uh, and by the way, they also say we're going to release it on July 4th, 1996. And that's a Thursday. So you got a four week, uh, you know, you got a four day July 4th weekend. And, you know, the trailer is going to and Roland describes the trailer and, and the White House is going to blow up. And I'm like, great. Sounds amazing. Um, I'm in. I go off and I'm like, yeah, you know, it's going to take three or four months to write the script. Then it's going to take three or four months to get it set up and et cetera, et cetera. And they end up writing the script in four weeks. They fly back on a, on a Sunday. We take it to every major studio on Monday. By Tuesday, we have an offer from every major studio and wow. a bidding going on. By Friday, we end up picking Fox. And part of the deal is that the movie starts on Monday. So it was literally that fast. Now, now. now. Okay, so wow. great. Oh, I have one question. So was Will Smith attached to the movie wh while you were pitching it or while you were selling it? Or is it just in that kind of an afterthought? Like, hey, what about that Fresh Prince guy? He'd be a good role uh, for this. Will Smith was not attached. Nobody was attached. This was literally just a director and a script. Okay. See, see, I heard it was that Dennis, you know, that, that Randy Quaid was attached and everybody couldn't believe that you guys got <laughs> Randy Quaid and they just started throwing money at the project. You got him. <laughs> no, it was uh, actually the studio did not want Will Smith. Wow. They absolutely did not w want Will Smith. They uh, so Roland only saw he did not even see bad boys. He saw Will Smith in. Um, oh God, what was the name of the movie where he played the gay kid who takes advantage of Donald, Donald Sutherland? It's, uh, oh, um, uh, seven something. Oh, it starts with an S. Can't believe I forgot. Anyway, that was the only room and which is not an action movie or anything, but Roland had seen him in that movie and said, I want Will Smith to play Captain Hiller. Um, oh, uh, six degrees of separation. Yeah. I think is the name of the movie. Uh, he does. He's great in it. So we pitched that studio, and the studio's like, no, no, uh, go get Brad Pitt. Wow. So there's talk back and forth, and I think finally we may have even given the script to Brad Pitt, and Brad Pitt said no, um, you know, because he had some probably had something going on, and uh, eventually the studio let us cast Will, which. It's hard to imagine that movie. No, exactly. Or, you know, the whole, the, yeah. the, 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 I mean, the confluence of like Paxton and everybody, everybody was perfect. That's one of those movies where everybody was great. Like literally uh, one of my favorite sidebar things about that movie is about six or seven years ago, I'm on a plane or somewhere. I'm not home. And there's a documentary on the making of that movie. And I see Bill. And you're telling the story about you're in negotiation with the U.S. military to get X amount of equipment, but they basically want it, you know, a uh, uh, final edit, or they want they wanted some like creative input in order to be able to use some of their toys. No, it was more specific than that. Ah, uh. they they read the script and they loved it. And by the way, they got it right. Wow, people are going to want to. Who doesn't yeah. want to be an Air Force pilot after you see, right. you know the Air Force or Marines save the world, right? So um, they said, we love this script. We want to help. We'll, we'll help you get um, all the Army assets and everything. We just need one little change. We went, What's that? And they went, you know where you refer to Area 51? 
can you just not talk about Area 51? Mm -hmm. You know, call it secret mission thing or something like that. And we're like, no, we can't do that. We can't do that because, you know, Area 51, this whole movie is built to, you know, we build these movies around uh, urban legends and all this other stuff. And 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 I and I couldn't help myself. I was like, so why do you not want to talk about Area 51? We're like, oh no, we really don't, you know, it's fine. There's nothing going on out there. We don't have a problem with it. We just don't want you guys to talk about it. That's you know, what we it have was. so many other areas. Yeah, like have you yeah, seen Area yeah. 53? It looks oh, it's yeah, beautiful. Said, like, yeah, you can call it Area 12 or something, right? <laughs> That's what it was. It it wasn't an Independence Day thing. It was an Area 51 documentary that I was watching on some plane. And there you are, oh, Doc. Yeah. That's what it was. Oh, so we could. I want to get to your big movie in a couple minutes, but I Let just want to say one quick yes. thing, though. So we got. So that was Will. That was Will Smith, right? So in my my first couple of Hollywood movies, I made. I worked with Chris Rock and Will Smith, and was hoping that I get the two of them together in a movie. But it was like a long shot. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, it's. So <laughs> By the it's way, Will, Will the also just both of those guys, incredibly nice guys and great to work with, like uh, as good as it gets. So good. Um, now, now, I, I really believe what you guys did with bringing the big budget superhero, you know, to life is really what made the Marvel because that's since comic books was invented, DC did X. Marvel did Y. Marvel did this. DC did that. So you guys really, you know, brought that back to life. If Iron Man isn't as successful as it is, Iron Man 1, and what John Farrow did is amazing, and then Iron Man 2 was successful, and that, the strength of those. But Bill and I know Iron Man does not happen if it is not for due date. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not wrong, am I? I, I I don't know if I quite as subscribe to that. Because <laughs> that was that was his first he did like there was a great movie and a small film called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that was his first movie back after no, no, getting out of jail. You know what you're talking I, I you're talking about Shaggy Dog. Oh, okay. All right. But due date, yeah, we worked Robert was amazing in that, but he I think that was after all. It was that. 2010. What was the yeah. movie that he had to take out an insurance policy? that cost more than what he made in the movie to get into the movie. There was a movie, and I thought that was one of yours. I'm not sure I'm supposed to talk about that. <laughs> but, uh, right, the where's the was, edit button? Okay. The movie was Shag Shaggy Dog. It was Shaggy Dog. just happened to be making, as we were putting together, it was an earlier okay. commitment. As Legendary came together, I had to, I was finishing that oh, movie. That's... And yeah. And um, well, Shaggy Dog actually has a big part of our story going forward. I just the last thing I want to touch about before we get to your big, big movie. Um, my favorite movie story of yours touches on Joe's all time favorite movies, Back to the Future. Uh, and I told Joe, you have a personal Back to the Future story that. The anxiety I'm going to have listening to you tell this story is palpable, even though I know how it ended. Could you tell your Back to the Future story? Absolutely. So, yeah, no, I was sweating the opening weekend more than the director of the movie was sweating it. So um, I had probably been out of school for maybe a year. I don't know. Um, and um, took my girlfriend, who is now my wife, to a special preview of Back to the Future, right? Just on the Universal lot. 
and we see this movie, I think it's on a Thursday uh, or maybe a Wednesday. So I see the movie, I'm blown away. It's back to the future, right? <laughs> I think, holy cow, this movie's gonna make tons of money. It's gonna be huge. Uh, I need to, uh, I got an idea. I'm gonna buy all, I'm gonna take every penny I have and buy MCA stock, right? MCA being the owner of Universal, producing the movie. Uh, there are lots of naive reasons why that probably wasn't a great idea, but I did it anyway. <laughs> and uh, so I call, this is back in the old days where you could actually, like a friend of mine was a stockbroker. I, I probably, I'm, I'm not kidding when I said I had probably $6,000 in stocks at the time, six or 7,000. I go take all of my money and buy MCA stock. And, and I want to buy, uh, I don't know, I think I said 600 shares. Right. I looked in the paper and it was selling for $60 a share. And I said, buy me 600 shares. And um, he goes, great. He calls me up. I bought the 600 shares. And um, so uh, and the closing price was $70,000. And I'm like, oh, crap. I, I had been off by a decimal point. He yes. bought me $70,000. Of it, I literally I've got six or seven thousand dollars to my name, and maybe you know two hundred dollars in a bank account, and and this and he like somehow left me a message on my machine or something like that. So the the whole weekend I I don't sleep. I'm going if if MCA stock is down like three points on Monday, <laughs> I, I'm going to be wiped out or worse, right? I'm going to be I'm a fraudster. And yeah. so I, I, I'm sweating it all weekend. Back to the Future opens, by the way. It's a huge hit. Uh, on Monday morning, MCA stock is up like, I don't know, 10%, something like that, right? I call him first thing. So I go, sell it off. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, Bill, you're a genius. You just more than doubled your money, man. <laughs> did, did, did your did your then girlfriend know that you keep this to yourself? Were you this close my enough? Who's now my who's now my wife? But at right. that point, were you close enough to say, "Hey, we could be living in my car tomorrow," <laughs> or were yes. you just kind of have all this anxiety yourself? And she stuck by me. Okay. <laughs> did she did she Through become your wife after the sale of the Back to the Future <laughs> the MCA stone? Yeah, right. That's what did it. Yeah, I got to afford the ring. So so. While Bill was at, you know, at, at the helm of Legendary, one of the things that I think you were proudest of is in your tenure, all but three movies were profitable at the box office, and the three that weren't ended up making money in the, in the DVD, because DVD market was still a thing. It wasn't straight to streaming. And, and, and one of them, you know, was a, hey, we're going to try something completely different type thing. But I think... You know, in conversations that we had, I think at one point it wasn't as much fun making the huge movies because at one at one point, in, and I forget which movie it was, from the day you guys said, we're making this movie, it was seven years before you saw it on the screen. And coming from the world of you, you know, with Corman, oh, you're three, you're three days behind. Boom, you're caught up. You missed the... And plus, and, and, and this is a quote I remember, you, you said, I'm not making movies anymore. It's like turning the QE2. 
You say, we got to turn to the port and you make a command that goes down the chain that goes, but you're not actually turning the wheel that you, your hands weren't on everything and you were a, a big cog, but in a large machine and you missed making movies. And like I said, I would make up excuses to come to the set. I love being at the set. Uh, I loved having lunch there. I love that you always bought. No, <laughs> no, but, um, but one day you called me and, and said, hey, can you come by at this day? And I'm like, oh, yeah. I mean, I might have had a kidney operation, but it's like Bill's calling to say come by. And I, re I walked into your office and you're like, okay, here's what's going on. Um, I let everybody know uh, I, I'm, I'm leaving in a year. I want to finish these project. I miss making movies. I want to make movies from start to finish, smaller things. Uh, this is going to be our first movie, and you hand me Extinction Event, um, which, you know, it's one of those things. It's like I remember it's maybe four or five times I've been in meetings with you and other people where I'm like, okay, pretend this is normal. Pretend this is supposed to be happening. Don't act like this is the most amazing, shocking, I can't believe this is finally happening moment in your life because then everybody will know what a fraud you are. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this sounds great. Excited about it. Uh, and then thus began the journey of the longest low-budget movie <laughs> ever to be made in the history of low-budget movies. I mean, uh, say what you will, but uh, uh, Ed Wood made nine movies in the time it took for us from you handing me Extinction Event to us having the premiere five years later, I think. Yeah, I don't know if I actually knew I was leaving Legendary at that point, but uh, I knew that it, it was coming sooner or later, and it was just that was just a script where the director was a friend of mine. I read it. I really liked it and wanted to help him make his movie. And it was going to be a lot of fun because it was exactly the opposite of legendary. But I was, yeah, at the time that you and I had that meeting, I think we had six things shooting. You know, we had a bunch of things in prep. It was, we were becoming a studio, which was great. I mean, listen, legendary did a lot for me and was an incredible experience. Um, and we, you know, we knocked it out of the park, but it was, yeah, it was not producing movies by that point. It was, it was super, it was getting things set up, spending a week on the set and, you know, not feeling like you're in the trenches the way I was back in the, you know, the Roland Emmerich days. So, Flying planes really around back. Zimbabwe. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and so and, and and we had we had so many meetings. It's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. At, and then I we moved my family moved actually moved to Qatar at that point. But the family that my wife worked for, we we just moved there. We were there a month and they're like, you know what, we want to go back to LA for six months. <laughs> and so we just happened to be back for LA. And we were there for several months. I, I saw you, uh, you know, half a dozen times. We had lunch and hung out. And and then I remember they're going back to Cutter. And in about three or four days, we're getting ready to pack. The boys are packed. And you call and said, the movie's on. You got to be in Jackson, Mississippi in two weeks. And literally, it was two days before we were set to go back to Cutter. I bought a car. I drove the boys to Boston, left them with my – I was there for a week, get them settled in because at the time they're like nine and seven. Uh, it was a great road trip. We drive back there. I wasn't in a rush because, you know, I had, you know, uh, you know, a little time to play with. Uh, they were there for a week. 
the wife had six weeks vacation. She came home, and that's when I went down. And and that six weeks in Jackson was just, uh, you know, f- way too much fun, way too bizarre, way too surreal. It was uh, – you could make – like any movie, you can make a documentary about a- a- any movie, but was that what you expected it was going to be getting back into that level filmmaking? Uh, I think so. I think because it was just the great thing about those smaller movies is everything is so immediate. You have no studio that you're answering to. I mean, to make a decision when you're, first of all, when you're making a $200 million movie for Warner Brothers or anybody else, you have to remember that the studio's fortunes for that entire year and maybe longer are riding on your movie. So there's an incredible amount of pressure on you, right? right. On, on everybody involved. I'm not talking about just me, everybody involved in the movie. I mean, you, it's, it's a giant bet when you're making a, a little movie for a few million dollars that's independently financed. I mean, it's a totally different thing. And, and the great thing about it is, you know, I could meet with the director at, you know, at the end of a shooting day and go, hey, you know, that scene that we're supposed to shoot tomorrow isn't working. Let's uh, let's just do a totally different scene. Let's rewrite something tonight. And there's nobody we have to talk to. We just do right. it. We're shooting something different the next day. It's I, great. I, it's like you talk about turning the tight. Yeah. Turning the Titanic or, you know, the Queen Mary. Now you're turning a rowboat. You can do that pretty fast. <laughs> and and how many movies had you had to hire an alligator wrangler for? uh i don't think we needed one for the patriot when we're shooting down the swamp but we did need one there and it turned out we really did you really did alligators it's so right where the the actor and actress were supposed to be jumping right it's getting pushed in the water the callum's callum's getting pushed in the water there and it's funny because I get down there. It's a few days before, and and the office is being set up. And I will remember there's a there's a really good good friend of of Bill's who's become a, a dear friend of mine, Tom, Tom, who was a UPM. It was undecided what I was going to do. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, hey, I want you to help out with a lot of things. I just what do you knew do? that we needed we needed a a Jacques Lambert there. That's all I knew. <laughs> so didn't know exactly where you, what you were going to be doing, but I knew we needed you there. We're in. We're in the office. It's Tom, Bill, and I. <laughs> it's Tom, Bill, and I. And to, and Tom's like, so so. Where are we going to put you? And I said, well, I and I remember this so vividly. I, I don't know the names of all the roles, but who sits in the chair with the megaphone and says like, cut and action? Because I like to do that. And Bill doesn't look at me, and he's like, looks at Tom and goes, shut the fuck up, Jack. Heads are locations. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you turn to me and you go, it's being a Marine. You were the first one there and you're the last to leave. Like everything flows through this. You have to be there to tell the trucks where they're going to land when they get there. And you have to, cause we're, we're using people's houses and farms and this, and you have to make sure that everybody's happy when you leave. And you said that you will learn more doing this. We did have a locations manager. It didn't work out. So I ended up doing that. And I remember driving around on an off day because we had to find, uh, like we had to find the the woods where they were going to have the scene. And there's a fire station. Somebody recommended I drive like a half hour, 45 minutes. And there's a little, 
Brook River maybe 15, 20 yards from one side to the other. And I'm talking to the fire chief, and he's like, oh, there's – and he names the alligator. He's pointing to it. And he goes um, – and he can tell I'm not doing well. He goes, trust me, he's more scared of you than you are of him. And I squint, and I lean in. I said, nope, doesn't look like he's shitting himself. I was going to say, yeah, and especially not when he's in the water. <laughs> no. So we're shooting at night, and the Wrangler finds – it's like a 20-foot cobra snake. And he picks – and I still have this footage somewhere, you know, I, you know, because I, I, I was there. You know, I've got my iPhone. Like it's nothing. Like, oh. Well, look, thank I God. So it was he a Union alligator Wrangler? Because he'd be like, <laughs> sorry, man, this is a snake. That's another Union. I can't touch it. Oh. No, he was a jack of all trades. He could pick up, yeah, he could pick up the alligators or the snake. But nice. the guys, the guy, the, so these he kids. Was a, he was a nasty animal wrangler is what he was. <laughs> and it is. It's the middle of the night. We're in the woods in Nowheresville, Mississippi. Um, and, and those kids were just great. Like, like anything they were asked to do. Like, literally, you're getting pushed in this swamp. In the middle of the night type thing. And they, they were they were down. They were just so agreeable. Um, the oh, and, and then they had to run through the woods, right? And yeah, yes. you're going to run through the woods where you just saw that wrangler bring that 20-foot snake out of. Or <laughs> and go! Yeah. <laughs> run! Uh, I, I think, and then it's, it's the opening scene. Uh, it's the first time. And, and look, this is eight years ago. How much has filmmaking changed? Because I remember it was a big deal that we got a drone guy. And you, me, I think it's uh, John and the drone guy on top. It's uh, I'm not going to say it right. You can help me, Bill. Caliesco, Mississippi, the tiny uh, little town. Which is actually the birthplace of um, and hometown of Oprah Winfrey. Yep. And it is. It's two hours outside tiny of little, nothing. Tiny little place. And and honestly, Joe, you feel when we're standing, it's it's the whole town is one little square. It felt like everything was a facade. You felt like you were at Universal. Like if you walked into the building, there's nothing at. It literally felt like like a, a big facade. But it's the first time, and you had a have a license. Didn't it look almost exactly like the town from Back to the Future? It did because it had right <laughs> in the middle that stuff. was 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 the town court with the clock tower and stuff. But yeah, so and, and I remember how much filmmaking had changed, and you were like, "What this shot would have cost two years ago?" Because you got this drone that's come. It's just forest. It's nothing but forest, and the drone goes up, and you reveal this tiny little town. Like that's a helicopter shot that takes tens of thousands of dollars to do two three years earlier than that and and we got all these great shows um by the way I, the movie's called assimilate remember Not, I, I mean we yeah. changed the title after that yeah it was a sting it, it, it was extinction event something else and replicate. then replicate it's still yeah replicate it's still replicate i think on the foreign market actually because that title goes <laughs> so well and then uh, I, I remember the only time I think I saw you stressed at all is when they were doing the house flip inside that big warehouse. You're like, we don't need to do this. Um, but it was pretty. And I have I have a shot on my phone five feet behind the monitor, which is five feet behind the house being flipped. And it's one that and I'm also up in the rafters of the fire station with a. 
where the, they, they crash through the fire station and everybody jumps. But the house flip, I remember you thinking, you're saying, we really don't need to be doing this. <laughs> <laughs> great. That makes me look like a really great producer. We don't no. really need to be doing this. Well, because, because of the safety this. issue. You're like the risk reward thing for, because what, what they did, Joe, is, you know, one of the characters lived in a trailer and they recreated the trailer, like half the trailer inside this giant warehouse and they got a forklift and they just flipped it over and there's a great shot where the zombies are flipping it over or the replicants are flipping over and one guy's like shooting out the window but as it's being flipped over he's holding on to the windowsill for probably like three seconds before he now because now the window which he's facing out of is facing the sky and then he drops and it was it, it was a great shot it really was but that was one of those it was an entire cast an entire crew an entire day to get a four five second practical shot or maybe it was 10 seconds but it was one of those things where i remember looking around doing the math in my head they get paid this, they get paid that, this costs this, and I'm trying to calculate, it's like, uh, some of the math that you were doing, it's like, okay, how much this cost, what we're going to get, the safety concerns, it's like, uh, I ended up getting so overwhelmed, I think I took a nap in the in the locations van. For, <laughs> well, imagine for... what that's like, yeah, imagine what that's like when you're making a big budget movie and you've got 450 people right. standing around waiting to get a shot like that that's going to be three seconds in the movie for all day and then you go wow okay that three seconds is costing us you know six hundred thousand dollars no it, 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 be it, good. and so you over the last few years your life has taken a different direction um a little background about bill he you know has a he, he ended up going to stanford what was your degree from stanford in I actually transferred from Stanford to UCLA Film School like an idiot, like before I graduated, because I just <laughs> I used up all the film classes at Stanford and realized that, hey, I don't want to wait around. I want to get in. I want to like do my now. master's right now. Where did so, your love of technology come from? Because I over the years, you've been an advisor, a consultant, an investor in a lot of tech startup stuff that uh, now. Yeah, I mean, I got into that through um, just from being around tech in the movie business. I mean, I've always been interested in it. I've been a, a little bit of a tech geek. But um, when I was at Centropolis, we built a 150-person um, you know, visual effects company from scratch. And I was the CEO of that company. So, um, and, and then just over the years, I've always been fascinated by tech. That's, it's been a cool thing. And so Bill's life has taken another turn. And in the last couple of years, uh, your your tech has led you. If I told you six years ago, your life isn't going to be making these movies. It's going to be flying around the world representing this company you've invested in that is a liquor smoothing company. Would you have said, oh, yeah, that tracks. That sounds exactly the direction I was planning on going. I've been playing the long game. I was just waiting to get into the liquor smoothing business. Yeah, not exactly. Well, I just finished um, I just finished a movie um, that was, uh, you know, it, this is like beginning of 2020. I just finished a movie. Um, I'm talking with Netflix about doing this, this, this other movie. And right then the pandemic hits, everything shuts down. And like in a example of incredibly perfect timing, a friend of mine from college 
who's an inventor and engineer, brought me this idea that they that he and his they have this like skunk works where they invent stuff. One of the guys has 27 patents. The other one designs and builds software control systems for like the U.S. Navy. They're they're really a this group of smart guys had invented this electromagnetic process where you run spirits or wine through it. You can actually improve the taste of them. So um, I tried it. I showed it to a couple of my friends that are big in the liquor business. Everybody's blown away. And I said, okay, I'm in, let's do this. So um, I took the absolute 90 degree turn and jumped in with both feet and it's been going great. And and you guys, and again, correct me if I'm wrong. Have you moved offices twice in like the last three years? Cause you're getting bigger. Yeah. Yeah. We're about to okay. move again. Okay. Yeah. And are yeah, you I'm banking actually, on, I was going to say actually CEO of the company now. So fantastic. I mean, I was going to ask you, are you banking on the, 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 the fall of society to further <laughs> increase the sales of liquor and out and wine? Because you know, <laughs> That's what it is. It's a, we, you know, we ran the numbers again, Joe, and we <laughs> figured it out that that's where, you know, betting on Armageddon is the way to go. Yeah. So, right. 2024 no, is going to be a those... big selling year for, let me just give you a heads up. 2024, you're going to see a, a real uptick in sales. I think you, I think you're onto something there. No, it's just, it's just for me, it's, it's great using a different part of my brain and um, spending time with physicists and chemists and, and these geniuses that invented this thing so it's really been fun and we're actually now building these machines that we that we're installing in distilleries all around the country we're putting one in uh distillery uh in vegas next week so it's a lot of fun and now are you are you also expecting ryan reynolds to eventually buy you out (laughs) absolutely we're going to bring him on board is more like it he's got he's got the the midas touch absolutely No, and and I'll have phone calls with you, and you're in a nowhere airport flying from point A to point B, but you need to take a Buddy Holly puddle jumper from one place to because you're going to this distillery in you know Idaho. Or yeah, weirdly enough, they don't build distilleries in in like the middle of New York. Well, they they have them in the middle of New York and L.A., but there are a lot more of them that are out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, And haven't you gone overseas with this? Yeah, we actually the last trip we went to um, a bunch visited a bunch of liquor companies in in London, and then we went to uh, Bordeaux and showed it to the companies there, who were very impressed. So I think we're going to be taking some stuff there too. So um, and and hey, by the way, not a bad place to have to go on business. <laughs> I mean, uh, sorry, Burgundy, which is pretty great. And and do, can we also segue into the hobby that you have with your brother that also is taking an unexpected turn? Sure. <laughs> so his brother and him have a family recipe with a salmon spread that they've been making for themselves for years. And and before last year or the year before, what was the biggest batch you and your brother have made? Would you oh, say maybe like uh, two pounds? Okay. I- and what are we what are we looking at right now? <laughs> well, I I I'm not kidding. We just had a thousand pounds of salmon delivered, and um, by the way, it was supposed to go into this cooler, which ended up holding about a third of it. So we had to impress on our uh, on our next door neighbor uh, company to let us put stuff into their uh, their walk in freezer. So we're set. But yeah, what happened with that is we were just we just make this dip, you know, like for family, salmon spread for family and everything. And then one of my friends is 
done like $2 billion worth of business with Costco. And she tried it and went, no, now we're in business together. <laughs> and so my brother and I and she are all in the salmon spread business, which is pretty fun. And it's great. I get to work with my brother, which is pretty cool. And, and I guess, just talking to Bill, I guess you, if you, if you want to do a rollout, you have to provide however many stores we're going to put you in four stores we need 1500 pounds for each you can't go in and say yeah well we'll put 50 in this and see how it does yeah exactly no we um our friend at costco had a conversation with them and they're like we we like this we're interested in this and we we're like and and they said you know we could test it in a few stores you know we need like 5000 pounds per store we're like <laughs> uh we'll get back to you in a couple of months <laughs> so 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 Biff, you just logged back on. So we're talking because because yep. I want you to be on this part of it. Bill and his I'll bring you up to speed. Bill and his brother, as a hobby for years, have been making their own salmon spread. Yep. You know, two two pound batches at a whack at the most, and he just had to find storage for the eight thousand pounds of salmon because they have a rollout for Costco yep. coming up. Biff, Biff's a big uh, fishing guy and fish guy. He does these oh, half cool. day crew. He does yeah. these half day charter boats where he goes out and catches the big stuff. Yeah, I have to correct. By the way, we haven't, we don't have a deal with Costco with ah. <laughs> interest from them, and we're going to be pursuing that. So, but we I, do have a lot of salmon for sure. I, well, I have interest in Costco. Uh, they've told me not to come back. <laughs> it's a different story. Uh, we're going to almost let you go. Uh, but the one thing that Bill, you know, you know, he has the liquor smoothing. He has the salmon thing. Uh, but entertainment is in your blood, and every time you think you're out, they pull you back in. Uh, can we talk about the the one of my wife's favorite movies that you and I now have the theatrical rights, uh, the play rights to? And by you and I, I mean you, uh, for Happy Texas. Which is also you and I, so there you go. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it's like Bill said, when I saw Bill in L.A. You know, a few months ago, and he told me about this. I didn't know Happy Texas. It just wasn't on my horizon. 2001, it came out, I think. Yeah, it was a 2000, right right in there sometime. But it was, uh, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great, fun little movie. And, uh, and, the, and we felt it was the perfect thing for a Broadway stage musical. So we're now developing it as a stage musical, and um, it's if if you see the movie, I think you can you can see watch it and go oh oh totally I see why this would be great. It's fantastic because I did it when I came home and I told my wife she's like, how haven't you seen that? And it's like well 2000 2001 I was in Vancouver with the starter wife a lot so I didn't see a lot of movies. But Steve Zahn is just. He, I, I think he's the, I think he's the best partner. I mean, I, everybody's great in it. William yeah, S. Macy. Macy is in it. Oh. Ali Walker, Ileana Douglas. I mean, it's got Ron Perlman is in Ron it. Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman has a great role. In it. It's it, it Ron per, It's one of those roles, you know, where I, I don't think he has five or six lines, but mm -hmm. every line he has. It's just he has such a huge presence in the few scenes he's in that he is absolutely great. But again, like, you know, it, because it, your characters take a completely different arc. But William S. Macy, truly, the turn that his character takes and then the other turn that his character takes and he's this. You know, it's like, wow, you know, he's, it, it's great. Everything about it. So, yeah, so, so uh, that's mine and Bill's next project. This is exactly. me officially letting Bill know that, you know. Uh, <laughs> Are you going to lose money on this project? Put together for it any day now, I, I think, right? 
Oh, 100%. No, and we're going to do a six-week run, probably in Seattle next fall. Very looking forward to it. Now, it's funny because, you know, I, you know I'm very close with a cousin who's, you know, he he's written a couple plays that actually went, you know, from L.A. to Off-Broadway and done some runs. And, and I'm like, I, I actually... And again, you know, I, I was not a theater kid growing up, but I, I when my wife took me to see Wicked 2004, 2005, I became a theater guy. Like, like literally, like, you know, our, Bill, uh, Joe and I rather are, are really looking for it because uh, Back to the Future is playing on Broadway now, the, the, the play. But uh, but yeah, no, I think Happy Texas is just it, it would it just screams out to, to be to be a theatrical thing. Um, just before I let you go, Bill, what? Uh, give me your three favorite racial slurs, and what is your favorite movie you've been attached to? <laughs> uh, mind if I start with the second one? And by the way, I think my, connection is get, my connection is getting a little vague here, so it may not, I may not stick around for the next one. Uh, so, Jacques, you might favorite... be doing some of that editing I was talking about earlier. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so there was this Belgian. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, so um, favorite movie that I've done or that favorite... you've been part of either as a PA in Zimbabwe right. or on the set as executive producer, anywhere in between. Is there a movie that you're like, I not well, that you may be most proudest of or you're like, God, I love this movie. Y yeah, I mean, that's there. There are quite a few of them. Honestly, okay. there are four or five easy that I can pull out that are just so incredible, like The Hangover, 300, The Patriot, uh, The Town, uh, all amazing experiences. But if I had to pick one, it would probably be Independence Day, just because at that point in my career, that was the first big movie I'd done by a mile. First big movie we'd all done. So it was like we were making this giant low budget movie and it was one of those things where every choice we made seemed to turn out to be right right we cast will smith we cast jeff goldblum we cast bill Pull pullman you go on the set you watch these guys work together and you go holy shit wow that was exactly right and then you know the first time we got together with the effects people and we'd done months of experimenting and we saw the fire roll down the street right how they created that and we we're like Wow. I mean, everything just seemed to fall into place at the right time. And then and it wasn't just the, the making of the movie, which was amazing and fun. And as I said, Will Smith is one of those guys who when he walks on the set, everybody elevates like 50 percent because he's got that kind of charisma and energy. So shooting in the movie was amazing. I did break my leg the first week of the shoot, but um when they say break a leg, they don't mean literally. Yeah, I know. I, I somehow messed that up, but I guess it was good luck. So, yeah. In fact, I broke the leg. So Roland and I, whenever like we would be having an argument about something and he would be sick of it, he would walk away very quickly. And I'd have to try and chase him down. <laughs> My question is going, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> so it worked out in his favor. But then, then we... In post-production, it was crazy. We finished the movie, um, or we're still working on the movie, and they play the trailer on the Super Bowl. I don't know if you remember. It was the yeah. first movie that had ever done a trailer on the Super Bowl. Oh. And so from then on, it was just insanity. Everybody talking about it, waiting for it. Like that whole spirit experience was like nothing I'd ever been through. And then we, one more quick aside. So we finished the movie. 
we decided we're going to do a test screen and we take it to Las Vegas, this movie theater, line up this crowd that Warner Brothers, or not Warner Brothers, Fox put together. They don't know what they're seeing, right? And so what I typically do in those things, I'll go out and stand in the crowd and just listen, pretend like I'm waiting to go in the movie theater. And they're going, I wonder what we're going to see. Maybe it's Twister. Maybe it's, they're naming all these movies. Nobody's naming Independence Day. And so, you know, I break out of the crowd. They file in. They start them. They start rolling the picture, and the title or whatever I don't remember what it was that triggered that they figured out it was Independence Day. They erupt. This thousand people in this theater erupt, jump up, start screaming, yelling, clapping for five minutes oh. during the whole opening for a movie they had not ever seen, and nobody had seen. It was. Crazy, mind-boggling. So that's my favorite experience, just because, you know, it happened. I gotta say, just hearing so about it—that's that's just amazing to hear. Oh my god! Now, so well, I, have, I have a, I have a kind of a—I'm sure it's been talked about, and I'm, I'm not that into the. I mean, I went to see Independence Day in the theater, and we had a my friends and I had the best time watching the movie. It kind of reinvigorated our love for like these big budget blockbuster type of movies. Um, why? And I'm, I guess I'm sure it's been talked about, but why not independence day 2 what happened to independence day 2 the sequel like there should have been like a big like okay this is obviously a hit let's do a sequel and right. what happened we i mean there was immediate um you know clamor from the studio wanting to start independence day 2 right around the corner you know i mean but we were Roland really wanted to focus, Roland and Dean both really wanted to focus on something else, to do something else first. And they were really passionate about wanting to do Godzilla. And um, so we got into that and that obviously, you know, took a while. And in the meantime, the, the thing for Independence Day, just nothing ever just clicked between the studio and Centropolis. So we never really found quite the right way to tell the next story. I mean, looking back on it, it seems like it. It you would never do that now. Well, well, that, well I was going right. to say because because if a movie does so well, you're not given the choice. The three hundred, amazing. Everybody dies. <laughs> you know. Oh, spoiler alert! Sorry if no one's seen the three hundred, and, and yeah. but it did so well that you know you know Warner Brothers turns around and says, "Yep." Do another one, but but no, well, we got to make a, right. We have to come up with something else. Yeah, um, yeah. No, that reminds me of my one of my favorite Saturday Night Live bits. I don't know if you saw it, but it's it's actually with Jim Cameron, and it's these two studio executives pitching him on Titanic too. <laughs> They're like, okay, we know at the beginning, you know, the ship sinks, everybody dies, but and then one of the guys goes, but what if there was an air pocket? <laughs> <laughs> But I'm yeah, listening. Go on. <laughs> yeah, you don't walk away. Yeah, you don't walk away from. And some people ask me that. They go, "Why do you make a sequel when it's never as good as the original?" And it's like because movies are, as the great Peter Goober always said, "Film business, right? right. There's the business, and nobody's going to walk away from a guaranteed success. And typically, right. it is a guaranteed success. We did Hangover too." It's a guaranteed, I actually have, happen to think it came out pretty good, but Great. it's a guaranteed yeah. success, right? So, but I'm glad you that, stopped there. I'm glad it's, a, it's an imperative, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an imperative. But, uh, but again, I'm glad you, I'm glad you stopped. I, I had one more note I wanted to talk about 
the, 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 your real favorite movie, um, Assimilate. Uh, it's funny because about a week or so in... Strangely enough, it's also the one movie that Jacques Lambert and I worked on together. It's my dad. He's been acting really strange. It's like he's a different person. Everything's fine, Kayla. <laughs> what happened? Something bit me. Can I help you, boys? Maybe it's like mass hysteria or something. Zach? What is it? What the hell? Mom? What the hell are they? I don't know. Here's what we do now. First they bite me. Then they turn into you. I want to go with Kayla. We need to get Joey. We get Joey and get our footage uploaded. Once people see what's going on here, they'll send people to help. It's funny because a week or so in, everybody from the crew had worked on a, a couple other pictures except the local. Everybody knew everybody except me, you, who came in from L.A., like a few people from L.A. And a lot of people were like, why did they bring him in from L.A.? It was like, it really, and I didn't want to say anything about it. And I remember, like, there was a PA who worked with me, a great, great kid. And one day we're out at a farm everything's set up for breakfast they're shooting in a barn maybe a hundred yards away and like four hours later the sun had gone from point a to point b and it's now beating right down on the tables and the chairs so they have to be moved to the shade you know to set up for lunch and bill's at like one of the tables like working and i grabbed this kid i said hey let's start moving things and i remember walking by bill saying hey these tables aren't going to move themselves bill and i just i, I don't turn around <laughs> I, I I don't laugh. I just walk right by you and say that. And we start moving the table. And then here's this poor kid, like right out of film, because like, you know, you know, he's the executive producer. You can't talk to him like that. I'm like, you know what? We're all in this together. And then two minutes later, Bill's moving tables. And I look at the piano and I said, told you. <laughs> and, and, and then the next day, he must have asked everybody. He goes, you know, Bill, that's why he's yeah. like, he, he was like, how wasn't he fired? Like, how is he allowed? Like, I know there wasn't a lot of security on these sets, but somebody should have asked me to leave. And I, I'm not going to say I made it my mission to have Bill tell me to fuck off every day. But I, the only time, and you, I did. You came pretty close to perfection on that. Every, well, sure. the, the one day I almost, I crossed a line. And I admit, I crossed a line. It's 1130, 12 o'clock at night. It is cold. 
And there was this wardrobe girl. She's really nice. She's a really, really nice kid working so hard. Those people work so hard. And we're outside this house. It's shooting in and she's sitting on the porch and she's cold. And I'm like, oh, do you want my sweatshirt? And I give her my sweatshirt knowing that she has no idea that if I give her a Patriot sweatshirt, and this is after this, this is after the Seattle Patriots Super Bowl, that her father is going to come out, see her, and, and you did about like ten minutes later. You come out, you see her, your daughter, who was you know uh, working on the film. Both two of his daughters, you know, worked on the film with us, and he's like, "Take that off now!" And she's like. Well, I'm I'm cold. You take that shirt off. And he just looks at me. Don't do that again. <laughs> and everyone's like, why is Bill Kelly a chuck? He gave him his sweatshirt. He's being a nice guy. No, I wasn't. <laughs> no, I, she could have froze. I'm, I don't care. I just want her farther to be pissed. And, uh... I, they, my kids have to be Seahawks for life. Okay? <laughs> but you know what? By the end of that film, nobody questioned why Jacques was there. They were like, He's the je ne sais quoi. He's the uh, he's the glue. And he can't even say je ne sais quoi. He's the glue. <laughs> no, it was it was so much fun. Um, and Bill, what is the name of the liquor company? And it's is it spirits and wine, but not beer. No, no. Um, our our inventors like to say that they can turn a great IPA into Coors Light, so it doesn't work on that. <laughs> uh, so far, we've not found the demand for that, but. Um, but it works on wine and spirits. The company is called Steric Systems, and we build these, um, as I said, these electromagnetic machines that we install in distilleries around the country. We're we're making we're making them as fast as we can. We're selling them as fast as we can make them. We've got them all over the country now. So, and how much travel do you have? Are you done for the end of the year for traveling with them, or do you? I'm done for the end of the year. Yeah, in, in that term, but the uh, the. My team is flying around. They're installing machines practically every week. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm doing a little less traveling for the rest of the year, just getting ready to go up to um, the San Juan Islands where all my family lives and hang out and have a good time. Uh, Bill, honestly, I, I cannot thank you enough for your friendship and your mentorship over the many years. I'm still stunned and amazed. Um, and, and thank you for coming on our fledgling little podcast. This has been everything uh, Joe has hoped for and more. Awesome. No, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Joe, great to see you. Nice Biff, to see great you. Great to meet you. Yep. Uh, it's been a pleasure, guys. Really. Thank you so much. And also, if you can, after we record, give me a good stock tip. I <laughs> really appreciate you. <laughs> movies that look like they could be, you know, big. Yeah, whatever it is, make sure you're off by a factor of 10. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the tip of the day is to invest more than you can afford. <laughs> yeah, take a, take a shot. Yeah, couldn't hurt.